This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is an atmosphere of trust. In the first half, Terence M. Vincent shares his address, meekly placing our total trust in God. Then in the second half, Jeanette C. Hales Beckham speaks on building an environment of trust. You probably haven't seen too many photos of general authorities in their young adult years with facial hair that would disqualify them from enrolling at BYU. Well, I was not then a member of the church. I was a university student working part-time at McDonald's, where I met a beautiful young woman who was sufficiently alert to see some potential in me and to encourage our relationship, for which I am most grateful. She would often arrange with the manager, unbeknown to me, for us to be assigned the closing shift together. As she had no transport home, I'd give her a lift, and we quickly fell in love. It was she who introduced me to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So I recommend McDonald's. (laughs) And I recommend finding an eternal companion who will always love the Lord first. How blessed we are to know our God and his plan for us, and to love him first in our lives. Each of us knows that Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected, and that he is the Son of God. We know that his gospel is restored, one proof of which is the wondrous Book of Mormon, a book of genius, beyond the capacity of Joseph Smith or any man to write, and a book which shows the Savior's love for each of us. It truly is another testament of Jesus Christ because it helps us to come to know him deeply and personally and to understand his ways. As I read the Book of Mormon for the first time, I could not deny its divinity, its examples of the love, justice, and mercy of God, its teachings of his desire to bless his children, and the depth of insight it gives into both his nature and ours spoke to my heart. Given these foundations for our faith, is there any reason for us not to have total confidence in God, who's proven himself time and time again, as shown in the scriptures, in the history of the church, and in our personal lives and experiences when we allow him? So how is that confidence manifest as we face the challenges and hardships which will surely confront us on our journey through life? Perhaps we can get some guidance from a story set in the mountain range in southeastern Australia. The Man from Snowy River is best known as an iconic Australian movie released in 1982. It was based on a poem by the Australian bush poet Banjo Patterson and contains analogies to our journey through life when we allow our saviour to guide us. It tells the story of a stockman, a cowboy in American culture, who came with his horse to help round up a prized and unique wild colt that had escaped from a ranch or a station, as we call it in Australia. As is the Australian way, and because it can be a harsh country, as evidenced by the recent drought and bushfires and the current floods, when someone is in need, people come together to help out their mates. That happened in this instance. A number of drovers, stockmen who herd cattle or sheep, gathered together to round up this wild colt. The most famous of the riders who'd gathered was Clancy, and he came from a place in the bush called the Overflow. He was renowned as a champion rider and drover. His experience, courage, and riding abilities were famous throughout the country. 
But one of the riders, the man from Snowy River, together with his horse, was the cause of some concern to the rest. They felt that the combination of this horse and rider would not be up to the task. They thought he couldn't do it. Naysayers and doubters are never in short supply. They're a dime a dozen. Similarly, many people today lack confidence in God or in the combination of us with God. But we know that God can make weak things become strong. Anyway, in this particular case, the rider and the horse were from the Snowy River region near Mount Kosciuszko, Australia's highest mountain. The poem now describes the scene of the group of riders and the escaped colt, born from a mare called Regret. There was movement at the station, for the word had passed around that the colt from old regret had got away, and had joined the wild bush horses. He was worth a thousand pound, so all the cracks had gathered to the fray. All the tried and noted riders from the stations near and far had mustered at the homestead overnight. For the bushmen love hard riding, where the wild bush horses are, and the stock horse snuffs the battle with delight. And one where there was a stripling on a small and weedy beast, he was something like a racehorse, undersized, with a touch of Timor pony, three parts thoroughbred at least, and such as are by mountain horsemen prized. He was hard and tough and wiry, just the sort that won't say die. There was courage in his quick, impatient tread, and he bore the badge of gameness in his bright and fiery eye and the proud and lofty carriage of his head. But still so slight and weedy, one would doubt his power to stay. And the old man said, That horse will never do for a long and tiring gallop. Lad, you'd better stop away. Those hills are far too rough for such as you. So he waited, sad and wistful. Only Clancy stood his friend. I think we ought to let him come, he said. I warrant he'll be with us when he's wanted at the end, for both his horse and he are mountain bred. He hails from Snowy River, up by Kosciuszko's side, where the hills are twice as steep and twice as rough, where a horse's hoofs strike firelight from the Flintstones' every stride. The man that holds his own is good enough. And the Snowy River riders make the mountains their home where the river runs those giant hills between. I've seen full many horsemen since I first commenced to roam, but nowhere yet such horsemen have I seen. So he was reluctantly allowed to ride with them. Now, the most important part of this story to me is the relationship of trust and confidence that this one rider, who was doubted by the others, has in his horse. It's analogous to the relationship that we should have with God a relationship where we place our total trust and faith in him despite life's challenges. The riders eventually caught up with the wild horses and chased them until Clancy was able to head them off and stood in their way, cracking his whip to stop them. But the wild horses could see their beloved mountains and simply rushed past him and his stock whip, racing for the safety of these mountains. The riders followed them to the first peak, The terrain was now full of wombat holes, which are similar to rabbit holes, but bigger. Wombats are short-legged, muscular marsupials about three feet long and weighing about 60 pounds, and they dig burrows in which to live. 
the openings of which make the ground perilous for riding. And there were lots of loose rocks and eucalyptus trees or stringy barks, so there was no clear path down the mountain. But herein lies the difference between the man from Snowy River and the others. He had absolute faith in his horse. Because they'd worked together for a long time, he knew him perfectly, and his horse was used to this type of terrain and had galloped down mountains like this before. So it needs to be with us and God. We encounter hardships and challenges in life. We can sometimes feel like we are careening out of control down a mountainside, beset with hidden obstacles. But God has been there and done this before. So why not put our trust in him? He who knows exactly how to handle it. Or do we think we know best and set aside his counsel as we try to go it alone? As you will hear in the poem, the man from Snowy River did not seek to impose his will on his horse as they galloped down the mountain. Instead, he simply cheered at the looming adventure and let his horse have his head. He didn't even pull the horse up to stop him from descending the mountain, as did all the others, including even Clancy, as we'll hear. When galloping down the mountain, he applied no pressure to the bridle to attempt to direct or to slow or to hurry the horse. He left that to his horse, who knew better than he did. Do we let God have his head in our lives so that we can arrive safely at our destination? Or do we question his counsel or his commandments and lack full confidence and faith in his ability to lead us? Let's return to the words of the poem. Then fast the horsemen followed, where the gorges deep and black resounded to the thunder of their tread. And the stock whips woke the echoes, and they fiercely answered back from cliffs and crags that beetled overhead. And upward, ever upward, the wild horses held their way, where mountain ash and Karajong grew wide. And the old man muttered fiercely, We may bid the mob good day. No man can hold them down the other side. When they reached the mountain summit, even Clancy took a pull. It well might make the boldest hold their breath. The wild hop scrub grew thickly, and the hidden ground was full of wombat holes, and any slip was death. But the man from Snowy River let the pony have his head, and he swung his stock whip round and gave a cheer. And he raced him down the mountain like a torrent down its bed, while the others stood and watched in very fear. He sent the flintstones flying, but the pony kept his feet. He cleared the fallen timber in his stride, and the man from Snowy River never shifted in his seat. It was grand to see that mountain horseman ride. Through the stringy barks and saplings, on the rough and broken ground, down the hillside, at a racing pace he went. And he never drew the bridle till he landed safe and sound at the bottom of that terrible descent. As you can see, the man from Snowy River was fair income. As we'd say in Australia, his blood was worth bottling. Well, he finally gets in front of the wild horses who are so tired and beaten that he single-handedly turns them back towards the other riders and herds them home. Not just the escape prize colt, but all the wild horses in the pack. The blessings outweighed his expectations. Again, similar to what happens when we put our absolute trust in God and submit our will to his, and when we don't shift in our seat. So I liken this story to that of your life and mine. 
We are the riders, and God carries us. If we are one with him, he will carry us to our goal. There have been instances in my life when I have felt like I was rushing down a mountainside, but was being sustained and led by the Lord. I was called as bishop of a large ward after I'd been a member of the church for less than three years, and I really knew nothing. I was 26 years old, and we'd been married for only three years. Our first daughter was only one. I was confronted with challenges that I was unable to overcome, with ward members having marriage problems and other issues. I was a novice at marriage, and all I could do was let the Spirit carry me through the counselling that he gave on my behalf. I remember hearing the confession of a young lady in the ward and not having the slightest idea how I should counsel her. Yet words flowed from me, and I remember feeling an almost out-of-body experience as it seemed I was an observer to this interview, watching from behind where I sat as the Saviour lifted this young lady's burdens. I was in awe of the Saviour's love and ability to heal. There have been many times when all the Lord required of me was to not shift in my seat as he led me down the precipitous slope to land safely at the bottom. In order to be one with him, we need to understand his most important teachings and commandments. So let's reflect on what they are. The Saviour was asked, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And this was his answer. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. It was only after this that he added, And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's important to note the order and emphasis given by the Savior as it is critical. We can't supplant the first commandment, the great commandment, with the second as is often the rationale for the solely humanistic view promoted in the secular world. And we can't disregard the first commandment while purporting to live the second. We must live both. But we must never allow our love for others to work against our love for God and our desire to keep his commandments. The failure to follow this correct priority is a mistake that is being made far too often today. Some interpret a desire to love others with a need to embrace their life choices, even when those choices are not in harmony with God's commandments. While we live the commandments and help others to understand that we do so because we love God and honour his advice, we can and should still love those who do not agree with us. But we must be clear about this. There are many today who believe that to love someone means that we cannot disagree with their life choices. This belief is false. To love someone does not mean that we are obliged to embrace as our own everything that they embrace. The Saviour loved the woman taken in adultery and the thief on the cross. His love was not diminished by his disagreeing with their choices. His approach was to correct but not harp on those choices. He simply stated the truth in relation to the moral issue and lovingly encouraged compliance. So it is with us. Our first responsibility is to God and to his teachings of absolute truth and to his commandments. The reality is that those who hold the great commandment and the second commandment to the order that God gave them will need to stand up and be counted. To stand up for what is really true in an ever more secular world, each one of us will need to cultivate the qualities of integrity, faith, humility, and strength, just like the man from Snowy River. 
The combination of these qualities provides a possible definition of the word meekness. The man from Snowy River was meek. He was submissive when at first he was denied the chance to ride with the others as they sought the cult. Even when riding, he did not initially lead out or seek glory. He simply and humbly applied with integrity and faith the strength that had come to him because of his unfailing and proven trust in his mountain horse. This quality of meekness is not well understood and consequently not embraced. It almost seems to be counterintuitive because it brings together the apparently conflicting qualities of humility, integrity, and strength. Its meaning is well encapsulated in the Ghanaian Adinkra symbol of the ram's horns. During the five years that my wife Kay and I lived and served in Ghana, we grew to admire and love the many Adinkra symbols. They teach wisdom and the connection we have to God. But the ram's horn symbol was especially dear to us. Kay has a ring, earrings, and a pendant, and I have a tie pin and cufflinks fashioned into these ram's horn symbols. Kay even made me a tie from material with the same symbol. We're both wearing these items today. The ram will fight fiercely against an adversary, but his strength is derived by his bowing his head in a sign of humility. In that submissive stance, he assumes his greatest strength. As his head is lowered, he gains power to battle with and defeat opponents. Have you felt increased power and strength after bowing your head in heartfelt prayer and expressing your submission to your Heavenly Father? And so it is with this quality of meekness. When we combine sincere humility and faith with the integrity and strength gained through embracing and living absolute truth and intimately knowing God, we become meek. And those who are meek are anything but weak. So our objective should be to be humble and submissive to the Lord and to increase in strength and power as a result. We do this by growing closer to him and multiplying the experiences we have with him. This requires our acting with commitment and not being acted upon. We live in a world growing further and further from God and his truths. You'll need to determine the strength and focus which you are prepared to devote to loving God and standing for truth. Will you shift in your seat and succumb to popular opinion? Or will you stand firm and confident in the counsels and blessings of your loving God and let him have his head? In this regard, we can take counsel from the wise words Helaman spoke to his sons Nephi and Lehi. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Unfortunately, this is not the popular, almost circulated message on social media today. Instead, it seems that sporting icons, famous musicians, and some actors and actresses whose lives are often full of deceit and dishonor sometimes become our heroes. But they're not my heroes. 
My heroes are the mentors in my life, those people who have shown faith and meekness in helping and loving me. The greatest of those heroes to me is Kay. President Nelson also embodies all of these qualities. He is a man who always has time for others. He is meek and kind. Recently I was invited to join with the First Presidency and one of the Apostles with one or two others to meet with the Ambassador from Rwanda. Mistakenly, the meeting appeared on my calendar for Friday, but when I arrived I found that it should have been Thursday. I had not read the invitation correctly and missed the meeting. I felt absolutely sick in the stomach for disappointing our Prophet and wondered how I could possibly face him. My feeble attempt to apologize was met with absolute kindness. He responded to my apology by indicating that I shouldn't worry about missing the meeting. He said he completely understood how such a mistake could happen. My grandfather, who died over 40 years ago, is also my hero. He taught and helped us when we were struggling because of criticism and ostracism from others because of joining the Church. He was a highly regarded businessman who was meek and kind. Despite his position in society, he always sidestepped praise given him. He lived a simple and humble life despite his status and his many and obvious talents and qualities. And he taught me by example about love and devotion in marriage. Another hero was my first stake president, John Daniel Parker. We moved into his ward when we were newly married and very poor. I remember one morning when we were about to paint our small and very modest home, President Parker and his wife came to the front door very early with paintbrushes in hand to spend the whole day helping us in this task. He also was totally humble and meek, yet a man of tremendous moral strength. We need to determine whether we will work with God and others for their benefit or whether we will forget God and seek to show the world how talented we are. When injuries brought an early end to my rugby playing days, I took up rowing with a mate of mine. The first day we went to the rowing club, we took out a boat called a pair, with a seat and one oar for each of the two oarsmen, and with the oars being on opposing sides of the boat. Our instinct was to try to outrow each other, showing our superior strength. As a result, we zigzagged up the river, with one of us outdoing the other for a time, and then the reverse happening as we tired. Those watching us must have been bent over laughing because we were working against each other rather than for each other. Fortunately, we learned from that experience and had success in races in the months and years that followed. But that lesson applies to each of our lives and our need to be aligned and in harmony with our Saviour. We each need to experience a watershed moment when we choose the way we will live our lives. Hopefully yours has already happened. My watershed moment occurred as I prepared for and entered the temple at age 24, just one year after my baptism, to receive the temple ordinances and to be sealed to Kay. The ordinances were God's way of delivering the covenants I would make with him. I made covenants in the temple, promises to God. I understood the import of those covenants and that I was promising God that I would always do certain things. This was most serious to me, as it would bind me for the whole of my life. It wouldn't matter how I felt after that time about any apparent frailties of other members or even things I didn't fully understand about the church itself, because I was not promising the church or the leaders of the church. I was promising God. 
and the promises I made would be inviolate. I hope that all here feel the same about the promises, the covenants you have made to God. We can trust him absolutely. We can get to know him even better as he works with us in the many and varied experiences of our lives. Just as the man from Snowy River knew his horse through experience upon experience. I have come to know God through my many experiences with the Holy Ghost over the years. It's reached the stage where I now expect that the Holy Ghost will guide and sustain me in each assignment I receive, without exception, because he has always done so. So my question to each person here is simply, will you stay as one with God, as the man from Snowy River did with his horse, by placing your full trust and faith in him? Or will you instead hold back by lacking the courage and commitment, the meekness, to reap the rewards of faithful lives? Our quest is eternal life, and it's won by his grace only when combined with our faith in God and our efforts. So let's not waste the precious time we have on earth in pursuits which are not important for our eternal destinies. As do so many young adults who spend their time and focus on social media, virtual reality, or electronic games. I feel to repeat something I said a few months ago because it's written in my heart. There is no treasure, nor any hobby, nor any status, nor any social media, nor any video games, nor any sport, nor any association with a celebrity, nor anything on earth that is more precious than eternal life. So the question for each of us is, are we true followers of him who gave his all for us? He who is our redeemer and our advocate with the Father? He who was himself absolutely committed in his atoning sacrifice and is so now in his love, his mercy and his desire for us to have eternal joy? Please, please don't put your total commitment off until you get around to it at some non-existent future time. Get fed income now. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is An Atmosphere of Trust. We've just heard from Terence M. Vinson. After the break, we'll return with Jeanette C. Hales Beckham for Building an Environment of Trust. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is an atmosphere of trust. Next is Jeanette C. Hales Beckham, Young Women General President of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled Building an Environment of Trust. August is year-end for me. It's a time I evaluate. It's a time I get excited about new beginnings. I suppose I'm one of those whose fiscal year will always be connected to the academic year. School is such a symbol to me of lifelong learning and growth. On long, hot summer days, my love for football makes me imagine even the mountains standing up a little straighter as the band begins to rehearse and crisp new students flood into this valley. I love this valley. I was born and raised here. I feel connected to the past and a part of the changes that have come through the years. Perhaps it's my age, but changes seem to be coming faster in recent years, and some of those changes cause me concern. 
In my present calling in the Church, I spend a good deal of time thinking about young people and what needs to happen in their lives in order to build the foundation of a righteous and responsible life. I realize more all the time that what young people need is what we all need as we continue to develop and meet the challenges of this life. As you do, I listen to the news. I read the papers. I feel a need to try to understand the experiences of others, to be in touch with the environment. I try to listen to young adults and their leaders as much as I can. When I was surrounded by my own children, I sometimes got out of touch. I remember one night at the dinner table making a comment to my family. I think people use better language than they did when I was growing up. Either that or I'm just a little more sheltered. With shocked expressions, I saw my children's chins drop down to the table, and one of them exclaimed, Mom, I think you're a little more sheltered. (laughs) Media coverage these days makes it a little harder to remain sheltered. Yet most adults do have a certain advantage in having input into creating the environment in which they live. Tonight, I'm going to talk about building an environment of trust. I believe the environment we create has a great deal to do with the kind of people we become. I believe one person can make a difference. I believe as members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are responsible for that difference. The environments in which we live, work, and play do have an impact on our behavior, and our behavior has an impact on the environment. The media tells me there are many reasons to be concerned, even to feel a little overwhelmed. From a press release, the number of juvenile court cases involving serious offenses, such as murders and aggravated assaults, grew 68 percent between 1988 and 1992. Of the serious crimes committed by youngsters, aggravated assault cases increased the most in that period, up to 80 percent. Homicides increased by 55 percent. Robberies went up 52 percent. Forcible rape cases rose by 27 percent. Criminals are getting younger. Victims are getting younger. In a high-stress environment, the news tells us that victims are not always strangers. In a Newsweek article, July 4th of 1994, what kind of a person, it says, heaps physical and emotional abuse on a spouse? Preachers have begun asking questions. One thing they agree on is the abusers need to control. There is no better way of making people compliant than beating them up on an intermittent basis. End of quote. The most vulnerable are women who are less educated, unemployed, young, and poor. Pregnant women seem to make particular targets. According to one survey, approximately one in six is abused. I'm going to quote another article from the paper. A prisoner, call him Jay, has committed 14 serious offenses and is confined to his cell in a lockdown unit 20 hours a day. Last week, Jay attacked two guards. As one guard knelt to unfasten his leg irons, Jay bolted from his cell and swung the door at the other and then hit the first guard in the head. The guards wrestled him to the floor and zapped him with pepper spray a chemical that leaves its victim choking and in pain. Hours later, Jay was still banging on his cell door and shrieking in fury. All this occurred where Jay is doing time for assault with a deadly weapon. He is 16 years old. End of quote. It's frightening, 
But even more, it's heartbreaking. This is happening in America. Gang members report that the reason they join gangs is to find safety and a feeling of belonging. How greatly we need a better way to find safety in a more caring environment. Contrast the gang approach with the teachings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul compares us as individuals or members of the Church to the parts of the body. In the much-quoted scriptures, he said, Although we're different, we're each important. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were the hearing, where would be the smelling? And so forth. Then Paul tells us how we can all be alike, that there should be no schism in the body. The members should have the same care one for another. In other words, everyone's important, each one different, but we're all a part of the whole. The members should have the same care one for another. And then quoting on in verses 26 and 27, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all of the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Our caring for one another builds an environment of trust. Currently, we see many good people who are becoming discouraged. The world's difficulties will require action on our part. Listen to the words of our living prophet, Howard W. Hunter, as quoted from the Church News July 9th of this year. He said, I pray that we might treat each other with more kindness, more courtesy, more humility, and patience and forgiveness. We don't read much about this, the Lord's admonitions in the press. We read about those things that run contrary. I feel, President Hunter said, a great responsibility because I believe the Church, the Christian Church at least, has a definite responsibility to turn the thinking of the world. Then the question comes to mind, what have I to contribute to that? We all have to assume a responsibility, and it can come about through the teachings of a Christ-like response to all the problems of the world. It won't come through any other source. We all have an obligation. That's the end of President Hunter's quote. A prophet said it. We all have to assume a responsibility. We all have an obligation. People of my generation often report that they counted on adults to teach the truth and to respond in Christ-like ways. I may have been afraid of mean dogs or even afraid of the dark, but I don't remember being afraid of people. Somehow, my home and my hometown made me feel like I was in an environment I could trust. There was a war going on in Europe and the Pacific for a good many of those years. Even when bad things are taking place, good things can be happening. A friend of mine who is a psychiatrist said, I've learned that people can handle almost anything if they have a place to go to be recharged. A temple can be that place. Home is that place. Where you live is that place. A small apartment can be that place. Wherever you are, you can contribute to that environment of trust. Recently, Virginia Pierce, a counselor in the General Young Women Presidency, was writing an article, and she reminded me of an experience written by Arthur Henry King in his book, 
the abundance of the heart. He describes an experience with nature and his father. An environment of trust can have to do with a special experience, a place, another person or people. As King describes, quote, My first real discovery of nature in life came one morning in April 1916. My father put me on the back of his bike, where I had a little seat, and said, Off we go. And then he turned in the wrong direction, for I thought he was taking me down to Quaker's meeting. It was Sunday. No, he said, We're going someplace else today. And we rode for about eight miles, and we stopped at a wood. We went into the wood, and suddenly was a great pool of bluebells stretching for perhaps a hundred yards in the shade of the oak trees. I could scarcely breathe because the impression was so great. The experience then was just the bluebells and the scent. Now when I recall it, it is also the love of my father who chose to do that that morning, to give me that experience. I'm sure he had been there the day before, found it, and thought, I'll take my son there. As we rode there and as we rode back, we heard the distant thud of guns at the Battle of Somme, where thousands were dying every day. That overwhelming experience of a natural phenomenon, a demonstration of beneficent creation, and hearing at the same time those guns on the Somme, that experience has remained with me almost more clearly than anything in my life. Arthur Henry King belonged to a family of Quakers. He joined the LDS Church as an adult. This is a man who served on the British Council and was twice decorated by the Queen of England for his contribution. He describes his environment when he was young. Quote, I lived as a child during the First World War right in the heart of the country in Essex. Our Essex village cottage slum was small, two tiny rooms down below, ten by ten, and an earth floor kitchen at the back where the rats ran and the spiders lurked. I had a little cubby hole by a window. End of quote. This description suggests that the environment may not be grand, but a person need not be limited. This is a man who enlarged his environment through great books. I would suggest that one of the ways we can improve the environment is by putting good things in our minds. People often tell me that one of their greatest challenges these days is the media, our movies, late-night videos, corrupting music. I know people like to make their own choices, and I never tell other people what to do, but sometimes I want to say, why don't you just turn it off? Do you ever pull up to a stop sign next to a car that is literally bouncing off the asphalt with that power bass sound? <laughs> Sounds like it could rock the Titanic. I'm always so relieved when the light turns green before the vehicle either shakes apart or the occupants blast through the roof. <laughs> As modern citizens, we concern ourselves with the ozone layer, with carbon monoxide, I'd like to suggest that we consider sound pollution. As a substitute, good reading, healthy discussions can increase the potential for a positive environment. Again, I'd like to quote from Arthur Henry King. He says, Literature is a way in which we can learn to live deeper lives, husband with wife, parent with child, brother with sister, 
fellow member with fellow member. Most good authors are better than we are. They are much better company than our own friends. What comes from good company? What comes from good company is better manners, greater sensitivity, greater sensibility, greater empathy, greater sympathy. Reading good literature makes us more capable of understanding other people, of loving other people. End of quote. A good reminder of the admonition in Proverbs, As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. The experiences we have in our homes when we are very young have a strong input on the values we create, the values we take with us. Not long ago, a woman in my ward, Layla Matheson, was released as our organist. She was moving to a new town. When she spoke in sacrament meeting, she talked about her love for music and the blessing it had been in her life. Sister Matheson describes early memories of her childhood. She lived in a small town and said, We were very poor, as were most of the other people in our town. Our home was small, and in the wintertime our living room was closed off with no heat, and the limited coal was used to heat the rest of the house where we spent our time. She remembers that each Saturday when she was a little girl, her father would bundle her up in her winter coat, put on gloves and scarves, and take her into that unheated living room and sit beside her with their two chairs facing their large Velcro radio. Each Saturday, she and her father sat and listened to the opera and sometimes the symphony. She said, I remember my father exclaiming as a beautiful aria was sung, Oh, isn't she beautiful? Isn't she wonderful? She said, We weren't seeing anything, just that old Philco radio. But this lovely woman seemed to have no bad memories of being poor or being cold. She had wonderful memories of time with her father and learning to share his love for music in that caring environment. Steve Binion, the president of Ricks College, told of a student who contributed to an environment of trust as a leader on that campus. This young student spent her first semester at Ricks feeling a bit lonely and a bit left out. She went home at Christmas time and talked to her parents about her feelings. She even considered not returning to school for the next semester. Her parents encouraged her to continue her schooling, and her mother made a suggestion. She told her daughter to do something for someone each day that she was not required to do. This young woman followed her mother's advice and eventually became an outstanding leader on campus and served as president of the Associated Women Students. President Binion stated that it would be difficult to believe that this strong and accomplished young woman had ever felt discouraged and lonely. The transformation in that school environment for her began with simple acts of service. Shared experiences help build relationships of trust in a caring environment. Some time ago, when one of my daughters had her first baby, I was feeling a renewed reverence for that miracle of birth. I said to my daughter, If I had a chance to do one thing again with my children, I would read to them more from the scriptures while they were infants. My daughter's face brightened and she said, Michael's already in Second Nephi. Dan has been reading to him every night since he came home from the hospital. Jane later mentioned that story time had become her favorite time of the day. 
a bonding time, a caring time, an environment of trust, where little Michael had heard the entire Book of Mormon before he was a year old. Why is an environment of trust so important? Dr. Paul Robinson, a psychologist and one who has written a dozen books on family relationships, said kids in trouble with the law can rarely refer to a good memory that they have had with their family. Why is an environment of trust important then? It's a place where growth can take place. We feel safe to acknowledge mistakes and make corrections. We are more likely to do our best when we feel love and security. It is a place where the spirit can be felt. I often ask young people what they think it was like when we lived with our Heavenly Father. Usually they respond with words like safe, happy, secure, beautiful, and additional thoughts, like we learned there. I ask, do you think you could provide a place like that for someone else? It takes some work and some planning. Each one of us could develop the ability to create in our homes, apartments, communities, even classrooms, a place where each one of us could maximize our potential. Contrast that possibility with some of the prevailing attitudes. From Futurist magazine, a 1992 poll of the under-30 population, 38% said that being corrupt was essential to getting ahead. 60% of college business students said they would be willing to spend three hours in jail and have a jail record in return for $5 million. End of quote. Those are attitudes that don't foster trust. As President Hunter suggested, we have a responsibility to turn the thinking of the world. I can hear you're debating whether or not you do that. <laughs> Getting ahead will be of little value if it is not connected to principles of righteousness. It is righteousness that allows us to grow. The getting ahead that requires corruption is sin, and the consequence of sin is damnation. Have you ever thought about what it means to be damned? It means that our progress is stopped, our growth is stopped. Fear, anger, hate are damning characteristics. Real prosperity is growth opportunity. Our Heavenly Father wants us to become like Him. He wants our experience to change us from a state of innocence to becoming spiritually mature. Study, work, keeping the commandments, loving and serving one another allow us to realize that divine potential. Building an environment of trust where growth and change can take place is as important as preparing the soil and nourishing a plant. Jan Zwick, one of our Young Women board members, gave a good story about growth in our board meeting that I'd like to quote. The bamboo seed is a nut with a tough skin, so after it's planted it must be watered and fertilized. But the first year nothing happens. The second year it is watered and fertilized again. Yet again nothing happens. The same process is repeated through the third year and the fourth year. Still nothing happens. Then, during the fifth year, the stalk bursts through the ground, and within a period lasting no more than six weeks, the bamboo grows 90 feet. 
Did the bamboo grow 90 feet in six weeks or 90 feet in five years? I believe that five years is more accurate because at any time during that interval, had the fertilizing and watering not been maintained, the plant would have died. We can never quit fertilizing, watering, or growing. While in the process of personal growth, we often only see the pain, but in time, we recognize the benefits of having gained passage on the path. Growth takes place in its own time, but the environment needs to remain healthy. Much of growth requires self-effort, personal work, but as we continue to contribute to a growth environment, we keep ourselves reaching out instead of turning in. In Elder Richard G. Scott's conference address in April of 1994, he reminds us of the necessity of individual effort in the growth process. Quote, Don't say, No one understands me. I can't sort it out or get the help I need. These comments are self-defeating. No one can help you without faith and effort on your part. Your personal growth requires that. Individual effort is necessary, but progress doesn't usually take place in isolation. Continuing Elder Scott's quote, Love comes by learning how to give it to another in a spirit of trust. Sustained concern and support of others will engender their interest and love. You will feel needed. You become an instrument through which the Lord can bless another. The Spirit will let you feel the Savior's concern and interest. Then the warmth and strength of His love. End of quote. Elder Malcolm Jepson, a physician by training, spoke at that same conference. He referred to the importance of the environment for those who have special needs. He made reference to the physical healing as he discussed the process of spiritual healing. Quote, I've had occasion to see many patients who were sick or who had sustained injuries to their bodies. I hereby make an admission, he said. Physicians do not cure patients. This marvelous, complicated machine we call the human body has built into it its own wonderful healing mechanism. All a physician can do is provide a good healing environment. End of quote. My own husband, as a medical student, was taught by a wise professor who said, Remember, you put the stitches in the wound, but you don't knit the skin together. Healing takes place from the inside out, and that is a miracle. That lesson has always been a reminder to me that patience, love, caring, or in other words, a healing environment, are like the stitches in the wound. When a person has been injured physically, emotionally, or spiritually, the healing must take place from the inside out, and that is a miracle. A good healing environment helps make that miracle possible. An environment of trust is a place where growth can take place, where healing can occur, where the Spirit can be felt. We can't realize our divine potential without developing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith grows best in an environment of trust. In this important time of preparation for you, consider the advice of Alma. 
And also, trust no one to be your teacher nor your minister, except he be a man of God, walking in his own ways and keeping his commandments. Thus did Alma teach his people that every man should love his neighbor as himself, that there should be no contention among them. Many of you have come from wonderful environments. Many have not. In the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, it is described as the Lord's message of peace to us. In verse 119, it states, Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. And then in verses 123 to 125, See that ye love one another, cease to be covetous, learn to impart one to another as the gospel requires, cease to be idle, cease to be unclean, cease to find fault one with another, cease to sleep longer than is needful, retire to thy bed early, that ye may not be weary, arise early, that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated, and above all things, clothe yourselves with the bond of charity, as with a mantle which is the bond of perfectness and peace. Isn't that a wonderful scripture for students and for all of us? The way the Church is organized helps provide an environment of trust to which the members contribute. The Doctrine and Covenants reminds us that our stakes may be for a defense and for a refuge from the storm. We should do our planning in the Church with that in mind. We don't need to compete with the world. As I was called to be the President of Young Women and met with my counselors and administrative assistants, we tried to focus on what we might do for the youth of the Church. One day, after a long day's work, we decided we needed a little break, and we went out for a brisk walk. As soon as we got outside, it started to rain, so we darted into the mall. We were going to continue our walk there, but within five minutes you can guess what happened. The distractions, the noise of the mall, caused us to take little side trips into the stores. Our thinking quickly turned to our own needs, the anxiety of schedules, approaching birthdays, and the new items in the windows. Then my administrative assistant said to me, Oh, it stopped raining. So we went outside and continued our walk and ended up at the Brigham Young Cemetery. Because one of my counselors knew some of the history of the area, we started to talk about the homes, the families, the people who had lived there in the past and had contributed so greatly to the growth of the Church. During that time, as we spent time in the cemetery, talking also about Brigham Young and the past, another feeling came into our hearts—a feeling of peace, a feeling of being connected, a feeling of continuity with the past. When we went back to our table to work and talked about the youth, particularly young women, and talked about what we wanted to have happen in their lives, I said, it's like the difference between what we felt in the mall and what we felt in the cemetery. People of all ages need a feeling of peace, a feeling of being connected, a feeling of continuity with the past. Ezra Taft Benson has said, The world shouts louder than the whisperings of the Holy Ghost. End of quote. It takes planning to eliminate that shouting. 
Our stakes and wards can provide a place removed from worldly influences. The ward is such an important place for every member of the Church. It can be an environment of trust where every member can feel loved, understood, respected, and able to contribute. We each have to assume a responsibility. We each have an obligation. Our prophet, President Howard W. Hunter, said, We never pick up a newspaper or hear a newscast that we don't hear comments made where people in the world have objectives and are following a course that is contrary to what the Lord has said on many occasions. Love one another and have charity for all people. He further stated that we have an obligation as members of the Church to teach that we can build and not tear down. We have a responsibility to turn the thinking of the world. Help make every place where you are an environment of trust, a place where growth can take place, a place where healing can occur, a place where the Spirit can be felt. The world needs the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That faith grows best in an environment of trust. I believe one person can make a difference. I believe you can make a difference. I believe as members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are responsible for that difference. I am so thankful for those who have provided an environment of trust for me, those who set an example for me. I am thankful for those who love, who teach, who listen, who forgive, for those who hold me together when I am hurt. I have a testimony of our Heavenly Father's plan for us. I have a testimony of the love of our Savior Jesus Christ and for His atoning sacrifice for us. I bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was An Atmosphere of Trust, with thoughts from Terence M. Vinson and Jeanette C. Hales Beckham. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.